Oh, thank you guys. Can we give them a round of applause? That's a big deal. Lighting the candle, saying a prayer. That was a beautiful prayer, Blake. Well, hello. If you don't know me, my name is Cameron. I am from Grace Snellville. I'm on staff over there. I've been with you guys a few times, but there's a lot of new faces. There's a lot of growth around here at Monroe, which is really, really exciting. And it's great to be with you guys today. Uh, Brian and Sadie are off uh, running a race. Um, so I hope they're refreshed after that race. Apparently they ran yesterday. And uh, to let the cat out of the bag, it seems like Brian did beat Sadie. So I'm sure he's going to be um, bragging about that. Um, although we did hear that maybe Sadie let him win uh, and so that he would stay motivated to, you know, do it again. But we'll see, you know. Um, but it's Advent, and yes, uh, we, are, we are talking about joy today. And Advent is a wonderful time for the church. And Advent simply means the anticipation of something great. The anticipation of something great. And for those of us who believe, for those of us who follow the way of Jesus, it's not just the anticipation of something great, but of someone great. And critics might say, how can you anticipate and celebrate the arrival of something that happened 2,000 years ago? And it's because the, we believe this simple but profound truth, that being with us is not something God simply did being with us is who God is. It is his name. It is his nature. He is Emmanuel. And what a, a mind-boggling thought of all the religions in the world. None of them have a God who would come among us. And not just among us, but to be with us. It really is astonishing. He didn't come and stand on a mountain and thunder down commands. But he came and he walked as one. He felt what we felt. He endured what we endured. He suffered and broke bread and had meals and did all of the normal, common things among us to show us the way, to show us a life of truth and grace. And as we will read about today, one of deep joy. Now, I must say, um, Kyle already preached the sermon today. You heard it. <laughs> I couldn't say it any better. That joy is not simple happiness. It's not just an emotion. Because emotions come and go. Emotions sometimes are dependent on what's happening around us. And as we'll see today, um, joy is something much deeper. It truly is a way of being. So I want to invite you now to, um, to open the word with me to Matthew chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, you can slip up your hand. And someone would be happy to give you a Bible, to loan it to you. But if you do have a Bible or if you're um, on your phone, it is Matthew 2, 7 through 11. And here we have the famous Magi. Now these are some really interesting characters um, in the story. Magi were... Students, they were, they were astrologists. They were what we would now know as the field of astrology. They were the early, um, 
they were the early ones. They studied the cosmos and the sky. They studied the stars, the planets, the orbits of the planets, and how they informed uh, the seasons of the earth. And it's really fascinating when you think that about the star, or some theologians believe that it possibly was a planet that had been out of view, but because of celestial circumstances, had come into view. Now, that's an amazing thought, to think that as God, Emmanuel, was going to come into the earth to be born of a child, that God who sat enthroned over the cosmos of all creation for centuries and centuries and centuries past had designed the universe to align in such a way that these men who studied the night sky could see a celestial being, a star, a planet, like some say that possibly it was a bright comet. We don't know what it was, but we know that in God's perfect time, it appeared to these men who were watchful and waiting. They were watchful and they were waiting, and there it appeared, and they followed it. And so our story picks up there. Matthew chapter 2, verse 7, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. Now we know from another text, Herod's intent was not to go and worship him. Herod's intent was to go and eliminate him because he was threatened by the presence of another king. Verse 9, after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and of myrrh. So, the, the magi, these learned, noble men, educated, when they saw the star and saw what it meant and how that literally the heavens were lining up with what was happening on the earth, these learned, noble, probably reserved men were overjoyed like a little kid on Christmas opening their presents under the tree, just can't, can't contain our joy at the wonder and the mystery of what is happening. And it begs us to answer, what exactly is joy? Is joy simply the absence of hard things? That's kind of what our culture would tell us. Is joy what we get when we endure and come through conflict, when there's no fire to put out, when there's no drama to wade through. And if you're going back home or to some family member's house for Christmas, you know there's never an absence. There's no shortage of drama to be had, right? There's no shortage of drama to deal with when we're getting back into uh, the whole family, the whole gang coming back together. Somebody's coming with presents and somebody's coming with their drama. Right? And sometimes we think, oh, when I endure this and get back here, or I get through this, or get on the other side of this hard thing, then maybe I'll find some joy. But as we'll see, that's not 
at all what, how the Bible describes joy. Another common misconception of joy that I think happens for us in the 21st century of America is that we're just pragmatists and we're just realists and sometimes we're a little bit cynical, aren't we? And we tend to think joy is just a luxury. Joy would be the cherry on top. Joy would be nice. And so would a big fat Christmas bonus. And that ain't happening, right? <laughs> so would a new car. So would a trip to Hawaii. Yeah, those would be nice, but this is the real world. And we don't live in fanciful land, right? This is not actually Whoville. Everybody doesn't run around smiling and singing and full of joy all the time. No, actually, we've got deadlines and we've got budgets and we've got things we've got to do. We live in the real world, right? Joy, <laughs> that'd be nice. That's just a luxury. Or sometimes we see the other extreme of it. We see people who they're not really grounded, joyful beings, like Kyle was talking about, but they are actually chasing a fleeting happiness on to the next thing. You know, they're the YOLO. You only live once, right? And I deserve my happiness, so I want what I want, when I want it, how I want it, and I'm going to go do my thing, live my truth, right? We have all these ways that we say, but basically we're just chasing after some fleeting thing that we think will give us fulfillment, and it never does. And so we see people who are always chasing the next thing, and we think, well, if that's what joy is, that's really naive and immature, and I don't want it. And you know what? We're right to think that, because nothing could be further from the truth of what the biblical idea of joy is. So it, back to the same question, what exactly is joy? Because here's the thing, according to the Bible, joy is not a luxury. Joy is a necessity. Joy is not naive and weak. In fact, the Bible says joy is our strength. It's our strength. In the Old Testament alone, there are 242 references to joy. In the New Testament, which is much shorter, 91 references to being a joyful, joy-filled, rejoicing kind of person. So what exactly is this thing that seems to be so central and so important to the scriptures and what it means to be one who follows Jesus well? Let's go back. Well, first of all, let me, let me read you this, this scripture. In Nehemiah 8.10, if you've taken notes or you want to follow along. Nehemiah continued, and he said, This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And he is referencing the Psalms of King David. Psalm 28, 7. David, the man after God's own heart. And oftentimes we don't, we miss the context of David. David was a mighty warrior. And if there ever was a man's man, if you want to use that colloquialism, it was David. David stood back to back with his mighty men. 
and fought and, and fought bravely until 800 men fell. His mighty man said his hand was clenched to the sword. David was rough and tough and fierce. And here's what David said. The Lord is my strength and my shield. I trust him with all my heart. He helps me. My heart is filled with joy. And I burst out in songs of thanksgiving. That doesn't seem like a very manly thing to do. Come on, dudes. When was the last time you burst forth into song with thanksgiving? <laughs> so Nehemiah referencing these rich, rich tradition of scriptures of the Torah that would speak of joy. And he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, for context, this was a season where the people of God were reclaiming and rebuilding they had been in exile. They had been taken away from their homeland. They had been taken away from their customs. You ever celebrated Christmas in a strange place who don't have the same customs you have? It's weird. Maybe you visited a friend or at a company party where they're, it's, it's like it feels awkward. You want to be with your people doing the traditions and the customs that you do. That's what helps us feel that sense of like homeness. Well, the people of God were stripped from everything that was home for them. They were in exile where they didn't speak the native language, where they didn't eat the same kinds of foods, where they were subject to different kinds of rules and regulations and customs. They were stripped from everything they knew and their city, their beloved Jerusalem was in ruins. And this is where the book of Nehemiah picks up. They've come out of exile. God is leading them back, the people of Israel, to Israel, to the capital, to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is leading the campaign for them to rebuild the wall, which, of course, is their semblance of safety and protection. They're rebuilding the wall, and everyone is involved in this. And at this particular point, they had heard for the first time the reading of God's word, the Old Testament Torah, and they began to weep. And they began to cry because they had been so long and they had been so far removed from God's words and his ways. They had forgotten. And now they're remembering and they're weeping. And Nehemiah says to them, this is not a day to weep. This is not a day to be dejected. This is a day to feast and to celebrate for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now listen to this in context. Here they are coming back to their place, building their walls so they are protected. And they're looking at their leader and going, what should we prioritize? The west wall where it's been broken down and fallen? Or what about the south wall where the foundation needs to be shored up? Or what about plowing the field so that we've got grain for the winter? Nehemiah, there's so much to do. What should we prioritize? And he looks at them and says, you should prioritize joy. What? Huh? Any pragmatist, realist, anyone who knows all the work that needs to be done, that's not what we prioritize. He says everything that needs to be done should flow from a deep sense of joy. So listen to this. Well, then what is it? <laughs> what then is this joy? I, this is really fascinating. We have to go back to, of course, the original language. And in the original language, the root word 
for joy is actually remarkably similar, only one letter difference from the root word of grace, which grace is also used interchangeably for gift. It is the Greek word charis, where we get our English word charisma or charismatic. That's a person with great gifts. That's a person who has a grace about them. It's also what is used of when Paul speaks of the grace of God that has rescued us and redeemed us, brought us out of darkness into the kingdom of light. It is this grace and it is remarkably similar to the word joy. In fact, Greek historians and theologians One of them, a very noted theologian, would go as far as to say the two words are actually interdependent upon one another. As if to say, if you have experienced God's grace, his unmerited gift of favor, if you've experienced and felt and known Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me, I was lost, I was blind, now I see. If you've experienced that grace, then you have experienced joy. And if you have experienced joy, if you've ever been in a situation, I'm not talking about where everything is perfect and rosy and and wonderful like you want, but you're standing maybe even in a hard place, but you sense a deep congruence, that God is at work, that God is with you, God is working and redeeming for his good, you have experienced joy, then you have experienced his grace. Joy is grace. Now, here's a a little deeper into our language lesson today. The root word of both of those, this is really fascinating, root words are very, very, very important in scripture as they are for us today in English. Think of the word script means to write. So there's a manuscript, there's postscript, there is scripture. All the, all the things that pull us back together to the idea of a written word. There's omni, which means all. We use this a lot with God. God is omnipresent. It means he is everywhere at the same time. He is, he is omnipotent, omnipotent. That means he is all-powerful. He is omniscient. It means he is all-knowing. But at the root word, there is this being of, of allness. I don't think that's a real word, but you get what I'm saying, right? So at the root word, um, in Greek, it would be spelled like transliterated X-A-R, but all we need to know is that the actual literal translation of that um, means to lean in, to be favorably, favor, favorably disposed, to recognize. So Bible theologians would say that a basic literal translation of joy could be stated as recognized grace. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Recognized grace. And what's powerful about that is it means that grace can be present but not recognized. And when grace is present, which it always is, and it's not recognized, then that means we miss the joy 
that comes from grace recognized. Right? And in our busy, 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 busy world, we do this all the time, don't we? <laughs> it reminds me of a story of my first child. We have three children, two boys and a girl, and my, my firstborn is now 14 years old and a freshman in high school. Whew. I mean, it sounds cliche, but it's just like, how did that happen? You know, and all the people who were like, you're going to blink, and he's going to be gone, grown and gone. And I'm like, nah. Like, wow, it, this is happening, right? And I think back to when he first came in to the world. The, um, you know, when you're pregnant, especially with your first one, it's like every moment of every day when you're near the due date. Every little feeling, you okay? You good? Is this it? Is this the big moment? You going into labor? What's going on? Whew, I think he's just kicking. I think that's just indigestion. I don't know what that is, right? But I remember the morning waking up, my wife put her hand over me and roused me. It was like 6 a.m. She's like, this is it. I was like, oh, what? And she was, she was like, this is it. Pack, pack the bag. We're going. And um, we, we go in. Right, we, as soon as we got in the car, we weren't a mile from the house. Her water broke in the car. I'm like, Whew. I'm the one trying to do all the breathing then. I'm like, Whew. Whew. right, they taught us to breathe. They taught us to breathe like, whoa, this is happening. We walk in, um, and you know how everyone's freaking out when they're coming to the hospital pregnant. And all the nurses, thank God, are calm, cool, and collected. And I'm coming in like, we need a room. You probably don't need a room. Calm down. Just sign here. We'll get you. I'm like, I need you to check my wife. I need you. Sir, it's fine. Have some water, <laughs> have a Valium, calm down, you're fine. Like, it's, it's okay, we're going to check your wife. And, she, and then we're doing all the paperwork, and then sure enough, she goes, okay, honey, come on over here, um, I'm going to check you. She goes in to check her, and kid you not, the nurse goes, oh, my God, you're about to have this baby. I was like, thank you, I told you. She's like, so they're like, you know, code whatever. We need a room and a bed. We need it now. And so we're going in there, and she's like laboring. She's amazing. She's the contractions are coming strong, and she's pushing. And um, and the nurse looked at me, and and she was she was like, "Are you are you ready?" And I was like, "You giving me a choice? Do I have choices here?" And I was like, "What what what? This is not how I understood it." She's like, "Your wife is about to, you know, give you your son." And she was like, call the doctor, call the doctor. And so they're yelling out for the doctor. And here comes the doctor. And that man walks up. I see, I, I'm looking through. He's in the hallway. He's eating a cracker. <laughs> he's eating a cracker. And I know he wouldn't, like, actually come into the room eating, but he stood right at the threshold eating a cracker. And he literally did, like, you ever got something stuck and got it out with your tongue? Like that move? He did that move. And he comes walking in, and he gets his sanitizer, and he's putting on his gloves, and he's like, how are we doing? How's it looking in there? I'm like, what, are we getting an oil change here, dude? Are you like a mechanic? What are, what are you talking about? My wife is about to give birth to a human being. And, um, and I, you know, I'm not a very confrontive, confrontational kind of guy. I'm a kind of roll with it. But I wasn't about to let that dude deliver my son with crumbs on his crackers on his lip right he literally had a little cracker crumb right here 
And uh, I was literally about to say something to him. And he goes, I think we, she needs a few more good pushes. We need to wait on two more big contractions. He's like, so I'm going to check back with you in a minute. And I was like, you're good for you, doctor, because you're about to get it, you know. <laughs> and um, he comes back in, and, uh, and, there, and this time he didn't have crackers on his lip, thankfully, and delivers our son. And it's the most, as you can imagine, wonder, awe-filled moment of my life. And later I was reflecting on that. And I just thought, wow, familiarity is a double-edged sword. Familiarity is what has the potential to bring us so close and keep us in such awe of the people we are in relationship with. But familiarity also has the potential to just numb us out. You know, hey, Doc, maybe you watched 10 human beings come out of another human being today, but I've never seen a human being come out of another human being today, much less my own human being. How did I get a human being to take care of, right? Like, and no, no shade on the doctor, right? He was actually really calm, which I appreciated, and, and attentive. But later I thought about that, and I thought, how many miraculous moments where God is trying to give birth, where he is being who he is, Emmanuel, coming into us, where he's trying to give birth to something in us. And I'm just content to eat stale crackers instead of feast on who he says he is, the bread of life. When Jesus said these words to his followers, I am the bread of of life, I am the bread that came down from heaven, referencing manna. His Jewish listeners knew what he was talking about, and it was a bold claim. Because in the Old Testament temple, as there were candles and there was a basin for washing, and there were so many rules and regulation, on the table in front of the priest, there was always bread. And it was called the bread of presence. The bread of presence. And Jesus is saying to his followers, they knew the story of manna where God kept them um, filled in the wandering of the wilderness. He said, I am the true manna that came down. I am the true bread of life. I am the bread of presence. So if we are to be a joyful, joy-filled people, we must become present to the presence of Christ in every moment. And we live in a society where we are numbed down and dumbed down, and the only thing that gets us excited are the big rah, rah, rah things. How many of you guys watch the UGA Alabama game in the Mercedes Benz? Oh, I just heard a groan. <laughs> that, hey, that, that was just like a somatic response. That just bypassed the brain. Oh, she didn't even think about it. It just came out. I'm sorry it was so painful. I, it was painful for me too. I'm not a huge football fan, but I was watching and it, it was painful. Um, but, you know, there they are in the Mercedes-Benz Stadium and you just can't help but take in. I mean, there, there's all these college students there, the dudes with no shirt on, their entire body painted red with black letters all over them. Um, they are 
they have, you know they have waited for this day. Where are your seats? Where are you sitting? What time are you getting there? Are you tailgating? Right? It's anticipation of a significant event. It is the definition also of Advent. And they are coming, and, they, and nothing is distracting them from what is at hand. They are present to their people. Right? And, they, and it flows, and so the result is demonstrative, exuberant action. They are joyful. They are joy-filled. And they should be. They're celebrating a game. But what's, what's off in this is we have been trained and society has conditioned us to think the only time we, that things are worth being joyful is when they're big and bold and brash and over the top. And so we're always looking for the next circus what if, guys, what if we took the same sort of anticipation of something great, of something as big as the, as the college playoffs, the anticipation that came to that, and we turned it to our very ordinary stables and mangers that we have in our life? What if we laid aside the... <laughs> Been there, done that. Ugh, boring. Wake me up when the kids open their presents ad nauseum so I can turn on the game and watch, right? What if we laid aside that, turned our attention with actual anticipation of something great, which rep represents someone great, and leaned in and were aware and awake to the grace of God around us? We would be joyful. We would be joy-filled. Let me just read you a couple of scriptures. I mentioned to you 240 times in the Old Testament. Isaiah, who was the scathing prophet. I mean, Isaiah was, whoo, he did not mince his words. Man, like my great-grandmother. Man, he's, he, will call, he was calling the people of God out. And we don't tend to think of people like that as being joyful people. But Isaiah actually speaks. Isaiah's letter, 33 times alone, he's talking about joy. Here's a few. The desert, this is why he's so serious with the people of God. Because they are awake to the wrong things. Things that are, they're, they're feasting on stale crumbs instead of what he's called us to, which is real bread of life. And he says to them, if you return to the ways of God, if you stay rooted, if you remain, if you abide, this is what will happen. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly. It will shout for joy. And everyone around will see the glory of the Lord and the splendor of our God. Goes on to say, then the lame will leap like a deer. The mute tongue will shout for joy. And water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Sounds a lot like Jesus' promise, right? I've come to give you life and have it to the full, overflowing life abundantly. 
not just life one day when you go to heaven one day. Life here, this day. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Overtake them. It literally means chase them down. This is what David was saying in our famous beloved Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. That, that, that connotation, that word means surely mercy and grace and goodness will actually chase me down to overtake me. Whoa, the promises of God. Let the wilderness and its town raise their voices. Let the settlements where the people live rejoice. Let the people sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountaintops. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing. The Lord will surely comfort and look with compassion on all her ruins. I don't know what's been ruined in your life, but I'm confident that something has because that's the result of the fall. But our beloved song that we sing, that we sang this morning, Joy to the World, that third verse, as far as the curse is found, as far as the curse is found, as wide as it is, as high, as far as the curse is found, there God will look tenderly and have compassion on your ruins and make your deserts like Eden. In our pain, in our hardship, in our confusion, God is always inviting us to see how he's turning our deserts into gardens. And it's long, and it's slow, and the world around us will always try to offer us a cheap, faster alternative. And when we are tired of the stale crumbs, and we return, God is saying, in the midst of death, there is resurrection and renewal. And wherever you have pain, wherever you have darkness, Wherever you have drama with family members and brokenness, as far as the curse is found, you can bet God is in the midst of that, inviting you to see him at work, to be present to his presence. And by doing so, experience his grace, which is deep joy. It's why we love all these movies around this time of year. Scrooge. Why do we love Scrooge? Because Scrooge was not awake and aware and leaning in to what was around him. He was tunnel-minded. He was a pragmatist. He was the ultimate realist. Bah humbug. Bah humbug. You and all your Christmas joy and singing. I'm just getting my stuff done. And guys, we can be like that. I can be like that. I was helping my, you know, we've been married 21 years, and we 21 years in, we're actually doing the thing we've been trying to do for 21 years in. We've got almost 95% of our presents bought already. 
You can applaud. No, don't. I'm kidding. <laughs> it's remarkable. So here we are, like, getting ahead of it so that we're not frantic on Christmas Eve doing all this last-minute hustle and bustle. But here I am still with the same, like, last night. We're, like, wrapping presents, wrapping presents. And I was basically Scrooge. My, you know, my, kid, my daughter is 10 years old. She's like, Dad, Dad, Dad. I'm like, I can't come in there right now. I'm wrapping presents. I'm like, oh, oh the irony. <laughs> oh, I'm wrapping a joyful gift that I can give to you. Now shut up and be quiet. You're distracting me. Right? <laughs> like, what are we, whoa, what are we doing? We get so tunnel vision, so focused on all the things that have to be done, and we're not awake and aware to the grace around us. Who are these gifts for anyway? They're for her. Ah, oh. and so, but Scrooge in a dream gets visited by the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. And when he sees his future, when he sees where his current state of affair is leading him, he sees it to aloneness, isolation, and abandonment. And Scrooge wakes up. It's the ultimate scriptural metaphor. He wakes up. God's always inviting us to wake up. And when he returns and he wakes up, then he's running through the streets, throwing out his money, giving gifts, singing, because he's awake to the grace around him and therefore has experienced true joy. Even the old Grinch, his heart was two sizes too small. Remember that? And he hated Christmas because he did not understand how all these people could have such joy. And he was certain and confident. Oh, it's just about the presents. It's just about the food. It's just about the trees. It's about all this surface nonsense. Well, I'm going to take it from them. I'm going to steal it. And I'm going to rob them of their happiness and their joy. And well, that backfired on him, didn't it? And when he took all their stuff back up to his little cave, to his hill, and he waited so sinisterly to watch them come out and be so sad and dejected, what did the Grinch find them doing? They were singing. Those weird-looking little people were just like holding hands, and they were just singing. And the Grinch didn't know what to do with it. Wait, 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 wait. I, I, I took all your gifts. I took all your candy. I took all your food. I took all your presents. What, what is going on? They had something deeper that was going on. They had true joy. And I want to close with this. We, in light of who God is, in light of his goodness and grace and presence to us and mercy, his justice, his power, when we see those things and they come into focus, it's easy to see that we should be joyful, even if we're not, even if we see quite clearly the gap between what we could be and what we actually are. It's easy to see, wow, I really should have more gratitude. I really should be more awake and aware and leaning into the grace around me so that I can experience his joy. But it is often hard for us we think we should be joyful, but do we actually think that God himself is joyful? Do we think that he's joyful? If you ask the average Christian, what do you think of God? He's just. He's powerful. He's mighty. He's merciful, for sure. He's wise. Is he joyful? Ah, oh, 
I mean, that seems a little, isn't, joy, isn't that like beneath him? I mean, we should be joyful because we're his children and, you know, we expect children to be joyful. But God, joyful? Doesn't that seem, really? But let me just read you two scriptures here. In Hebrews, it says this. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Now that we can get on board with, right? God loves righteousness, hates wickedness. That's God, right? Therefore, God, your God, he's speaking of the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Wait a minute. Now here's God who set forth to redeem all of mankind by sending his son, being Emmanuel, God with us, to rescue, redeem, and restore, raising him to the right hand of the Father over all creation. He can anoint him with anything. And he says, I'm going to anoint you, not with power, not with wisdom, not with might. I'm going to anoint you with joy. (laughs) And then... In Hebrews 12, the writer says, he, speaking of Jesus, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising, ignoring its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, anointed with that joy of oil, the oil of joy. He, for the joy that was set before him. Do you know What that joy is that was set before him? It was you and I. It was us. The people of God. His prized possession. The bride of Christ. My people were lost. As far as the curse is found, I see woundedness and brokenness and heaviness and friction and betrayal. I'm going for my people so that their deserts and wastelands can become a rich garden like Eden, like we intended from the beginning. And they are the joy that is set before me. And I will endure the cross so that they can become the joyful people they were always intended to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We're overwhelmed by your grace. Who would have thought This was the plan, that you would come, invade the enemy, invade darkness, to offer joy and light and peace and hope and grace. Your goodness knows no bounds. I pray, God, that we'd be awake and aware and present to your presence right now in this moment.